This is Strange Assembly, episode 266, V5, One Year Later. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Craig Kellner. Greetings, everyone. And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. We are here to talk about Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. Uh, If you listen to the podcast, you may have already heard Craig and I talk about the V5 book closer to when it came out, and then the Camarilla and the Anarch books. But as we were approaching Gen Con 2019, it reminded me that right the the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade came out at Gen Con 2018, and we have been playing uh, Vampire using the V5 rules since then. And it, I thought it would be interesting to kind of go back and look at the system as we've been using it over the last year. And some of it will be a little bit high level. Some of it will be excessively nitty-gritty but you know that's that's what you get when i'm talking nitty-gritty so i'll toss it to you craig and what what is the single most noteworthy thing that you'd want to talk about about how v5 has gone over the last year for us i want to say that overall that while some people might um, disagree i think the system is better than some of the other ones for two reasons and for these pretty much these reasons alone the hunger dice and some of the discipline balance i do like the generally what they've done with the disciplines i mean don't get me wrong i could sit here and say oh this particular power on this particular dot of this particular discipline is garbage because the way that they you know they set up the mechanics for it craig and i both know exactly which one i'm talking about but (laughs) I could do that if we sat down and went back through V20 and then played that again for a year, you know, point to individual dots that, you know, of particular powers that were not necessarily the best suited. But in general, I do like the generally less bonkerness in the disciplines, I think works out well. And I do like the ability to kind of customize within a discipline and i know that some people lament largely the removal of signature disciplines but i kind of like that better i mean i like the idea of okay no that's just two clans with proteans who tend to develop different versions of the one dot power rather than this clan has its own completely different thing and that clan has its own completely different thing and you know, every time we introduce a new bloodline, there has to be yet yet another uh, <laughs> full array of magical powers for them. Not, not yeah. that they've introduced bloodlines yet in this, but... Yeah, I mean, it was clear from the very beginning that they're scaling back and um, bringing it back to the core clans with a focus on, like, young Anarchs and Neonates. Basically, start fresh from the beginning, bring it back to what Vampire was originally intended to be about, and then, as they did previously slowly introduce uh, more expansions and whatnot. But there are the people who want to have access to these special powers, and you could really break the game by making them signature disciplines. But if everyone has access to all these special powers in some form or another, then mechanically it makes it 
a bit better for there to be balance amongst different clans. And it's not like you can't still enforce flavor stuff. I mean, like, I personally preferred the Malkavians to not have their own signature thing, for example, and because that's, in this right, that's gone, but then Dementation is still there as an amalgam power, and if, you know, you don't like the flavor of that being usable by someone else, then in with your character you can just be like, oh, well, I won't take that even though I meet the prereqs, because my character doesn't do this weird mental manipulation thing that I associate with Malkavians, right? I did want to delve into the hunger dice a little bit, or I guess let me rewind that into the into hunger because there's there's hunger and hunger dice are not the same thing really, mm-hmm. and see what your thoughts are based on because oh, this is like I said I write fair warning I overanalyze things sometimes because <laughs> I think a lot of people really like the new hunger system I, I I it seems to me that it is in general people's favorite thing about the new system. Uh, do you get that yeah, sense too, Greg? That's completely my favorite thing about the new system. Rather than having, basically, I said this before, a gas tank that you're filling up before you go do battle, you have risk versus reward with the hunger dice system rather than just resource management. And there are plenty of other things you can spend time with resource management on this game that the night to night, will I have enough blood to survive? That is a really good story for a small time, but after that, you kind of want to move on into bigger and better story things. Well, so let me ask you about that. So there are, maybe there's more, but it seems like there's at least, there's two things really that are notably different about hunger now. And I think one of them is a more valuable contribution than the other one. I'm curious to see what you think, uh, although you, you may have tipped your hand with what you just said. One difference is the addition of the hunger dice. The fact that as your character gets more hungry, it's it's no longer this thing where right like you're it doesn't matter if you're nine or you're at five or or however many blood points you had in the under the old system. At some point, like okay, you you risk frenzying if you were too hungry, but now you have these special dice where it can incrementally interfere with your ability to get things done because you're hungry. That's one aspect of the hunger system. The other aspect which maybe is what you call the resource management, is that you no longer have a literal blood pool. However, like let's let's set aside what the flavor of that might mean. I kind of wonder how different that is or how much that really is a resource management, because this is the half of it that I'm not as sure about. Because right in prior times you had like a fixed pool of ten for a typical starting character, and you would know for certain whether or not your power was going to spend a blood point or not. Now, it's not that you aren't you doing engaging in resource management. You still have a pool. It's just that your pool is 5 in, instead of 10, and when you go to spend, you don't actually know whether or not you spend. You only have a 50-50 chance of actually spending. It's just that your pool is called something different now. Actually, you're it, to some ways, your pool is effectively even smaller because your your pool is really four instead of ten, uh, not even five. So, I mean, what what do you think about those individual aspects of the hunger system? I personally like the randomness, whether or not your power is going to work or not, because it's these random things that kind of draw the story. Not knowing whether you're not going to frenzy during the middle of a confrontation is kind of what um brings about conflict um 
you could be cool as a cucumber, but then you get your um, blood going a little bit, um, and you fail your rouse check, and it kind of like, I'm not sure if I'm describing this very well, but it kind of promotes some conflict, just having that randomness in there. You said earlier, just just having to roll something rather than just um, doing it means that there's a chance of either failure or a great success. I like those um, type of game mechanics that uh, promote that. So I I really like the Hunger Dice. I really like that mechanical flavor notion of how right the beast creeping in on your ability to control yourself, especially it increases the chance that there's a bestial failure. It limits or eliminates your ability to manipulate what you're doing with willpower. And I think that works really great. I like the flavor notion of the rouse check that it like it's kind of unpredictable. It's not just this easily managed sort of thing that you're doing. However, I have not found that to be as great in routine play. And Craig's going to know exactly where I'm I'm going with this example, right? Cuz this there was a string there where I literally failed like 12 rouse checks in a row. But it's not and it's that the rouse checks, okay, it's one thing if you're in the middle of a fight, but on a day-to-day basis, the most common rouse checks are the rouse check you make when you get up in the morning. And then if you're actually following the rules, the rouse check that you make on an almost daily basis when you activate Blush of Life, which means that you have the possibility of the vampire wakes up at hunger one, lowest you can get unless you killed somebody last night, and then you fail two rouse checks, and now you're at hunger three. And hunger three is quite a high level of hunger. It's a level of hunger where you basically have to deal with it, or like spend the entire evening at, at a high risk of frenzy. And not because you did anything interesting, but because you woke up. And right, you said earlier, and Craig and I, I absolutely agree, you can only talk about feeding so much. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is it's almost like you wake up, you make these rouse checks, these these dice rolls, and then if the dice rolls go bad, then you immediately have to go into a, a you don't I guess you don't have to, but like you you really immediately want to do is then go into a, a hunting thing because you're hungry because you're hungry and it just like forces that to come up and up again and it doesn't end up doing anything interesting it it basically ends up being do you have a way to make a good hunting roll. Okay, whatever. You just make a die roll and and it goes away again. Like, what was the whole point of going through this making rouse checks thing? Or you don't and then you're just hosed. And maybe that just means that, I don't know, maybe the answer is what I think you see a lot of times is, why do you actually follow the rules and require a rouse check for blush of life? (laughs) I mean, when you see people do actual plays, how often do you see when you actually browse check to blush of life to be able to interact with mortals? It seems like everybody just assumes that everybody's always blushed. And maybe that's the answer, is to just not actually require a blood spend. Then, okay, what, you go to bed at one, you wake up, maybe you're a two. Two is a lot more manageable than three. I've seen a lot of people house rule that you get blush of life in your initial waking rouse check anyways. I think what they're trying to do is, again, bring the focus back onto your new feral vampires, either anarchs or neonates, maybe in or in the Camarilla or not, 
and this is something you have to deal with because you're new. You haven't learned to um, either not care about what you look like um, in front of mortals when you're uh, interacting with them because you have like other powers like dominate to kind of make it seem like it doesn't matter that you look like a corpse. Or you are lucky enough to have some of these, you know, coterie backgrounds, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, domain, which really makes that that initial hunting role that you have to do every night much less of a mechanical thing. But again, we come back to just having to roll, just having to roll the dice could have the result of failure. So it's kind of a wash there. And yeah, I definitely see why people just don't follow that rule or use that rule. It's to some extent, it's the roll dice when it's interesting. It's interesting to roll dice in a conflict. It's not really that interesting to have a bunch of die rolls for waking up. Now, you did talk about something with feeding there, and that kind of goes into it was something else I did want to talk about, which is the diff- is, mm. which is the difficulty system. Like I said, I, I don't really want to get into sort of individual dot things, but let me note that when you are creating a coterie, there is one background that you basically have the ability to invest all of your points in that makes hunting easy, and there's one background that makes... And, like, if you take any of the other backgrounds, they do handy things. Don't take any of the other backgrounds. Take the one that makes your hunting rolls easy, or your entire game is going to be, I try to hunt, I fail, I try to hunt, I fail, I try to hunt, I fail, oh my gosh, this is boring. Partially, it's like, it, it, it plays in something that's always there in Vampire, where you have the element of, you have to have hunting as a thing, because if you completely detach out of the game the whole you are drinking people's blood to survive then you're losing a core element of the horror while at the same time it just gets tedious if you play that out over and over and over again but part of the reason why this comes up is the way that the difficulty works and let me generally say that the problem is the difficulties are too high in the system as written and I think that partially that is uh, uh, so something that stands out to me, for example, is that in the book, there is a chart that lists what the flavor of the difficulties is, right? And so you have a, a difficulty one is routine, and a difficulty three is moderate. So you you really if you read the book, it really baselines the difficulty at three. And three is really yeah. difficult, it turns out. So here's the thing. The reason I focus on this chart, if you look at this chart, which has difficulty routine, one success, straightforward, two success, moderate, three success, and you go into V20, and you look at the V20 difficulty chart, it's exactly the same flavor description. Maybe like it's not literally exactly exactly, but it's the same flavor descriptions. It's like they just cut and pasted the chart into V5. The problem is that I believe in V20, a moderate difficulty is like a 6. And in V5, a moderate difficulty is 3 successes. Well, here's the thing. 3 successes in V5 is way harder than succeeding at a difficulty 6 roll in V20. Because difficulty 6 meant that you roll your die pool and you got to get one die that's a 6 or higher. So you actually have a pretty good chance of succeeding if you're rolling like three dice. You got two in the attribute, you got one in the skill. I mean, it's going to be a, a marginal success. You know, you get like the one success. 
But if you need three successes on something and you are not that good at it, right? It's moderately difficult. You got two in the attributes, you bought one of the skills. So you're not good at this thing. Clearly you're not good. But moderate difficulty, like if you have any kind of skill at the thing, you should be able to reasonably often succeed at moderately difficult tasks. You will never succeed at a difficulty three task with three dice. Mm -hmm. You have to roll a critical or get a success on every single die. It's just, you basically have to take this chart and throw it out. You just do. The simplest thing is to just like reduce all the difficulties by one off this chart. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but like if there's something that's routine, why are you rolling? Don't roll ever. Don't roll ever, right? If there's something that's one of these is straightforward, okay, sure, require only one success. Moderate, require only two. Like I said, I don't know that that's like the best way to do it, but it's better than using the chart as written. Difficulty changes are really significant in this system. They're quite big. Increasing the difficulty by one is like losing two dice off of a pool. That's that's why, although domain is really powerful, like one of the one of the other coterie. I mean, the uh, I, we're saying domain. They've got these names. I don't even. It's chassis, right? Chassis is the one that affects feeding. There is no domain mechanic, right? It's it's chassis and portillion and something else. Yeah, they did the same thing with context, where the context where they split it up into different degrees of like, oh, this is uh, how easy it is in one. This is how how much you know about the area. This is how much security you got in the area. But what our listeners haven't um, noticed is while Chris was uh, ranting about this, I was just nodding my head along. We're looking at page one nineteen, and <laughs> uh, besides him. Um, just mentioning everything I w- might have mentioned on it, uh, I want to just um, note that we played a few of the um, um, sessions just straightforward to see what it's like. And then Chris pointed out, and almost immediately I'm like, I'm just dropping everything by one difficulty, and it ran fairly smoothly, more or less. I think another thing that the rules um, are suggesting that you're doing is just like taking like if you have a certain um, degree of skill in something, you could just like take half of it and not have to roll. That's basically an automatic win. Now, automatic wins are also often for things would be boring. Like that's the kind of place where automatic successes are interesting, like as opposed to combat. So, I mean, any any application of automatic successes always has storyteller discretion built into it anyway so like i think it's okay to continue to apply that with lower difficulties mm-hmm. another option they have is the win it with the cost which basically as long as you have some degree of success you can kind of negotiate and find out yeah you can pass that role but at what cost like were you noticed um did you leave something behind that can be a bit of a, a stopgap, uh, I think, and that which can seg into to something else. But before we, I, I, I actually do the real smooth seg, let me just rewind back and say, like, like again, especially just think about this with feeding difficulties. The default feeding difficulty for a domain, for a lot of these things, when the feeding difficulties are like four or five, because that is a place where they actually list separate from this chart, you should probably just ignore that chart too. It's not just this chart the difficulties listed in the book are just too high. I like the, the system, but like the, the, the difficulty's got to come down. And feeding is just the place where it, like that's a constant role that you make, and it's a role that like when you aren't making it can just bog the game down. 
So, but you said, Craig, right, you can, it can get a little complicated if you have, like, are trying to, inf- uh, you know, come up with a distinctive story cost every time you want to fail at a cost. But the, the most basic thing you can do to fail at a cost is, oh, you're missing one success, spend a willpower. You can also spend a willpower to re-roll three dice. That's much more effective when you've got a lot of dice <laughs> and you're like, oh, I have two successes, let me re-roll the three failures, but it's still a thing that you've... Yeah, you can't, you can't re-roll the hunger dice, though. Well, that is another way that like the system system kind of interacts that you have to think with. I mean, we've already spent too long in anyway, right? On the mm-hmm. the difficulties is because if you're at hunger three and if you're like only rolling four dice at something anyway, you don't have any ability to use willpower to re-roll. Or worse is when you're spending re-power to re-roll, re-roll your successes so you fail and not get a messy critical. <laughs> so like wanting to fail and having to be further penalized to you by using your willpower to do that it's it's kind of sloppy but all in all yeah so yeah we should probably rewind back around to criticals if they are i i, I guess yeah, i people just have to remember I, I guess i end up watching too many things sometimes where it feels like somebody gets a messy critical and like it becomes a and therefore this cool messy thing happens like that's not really the intent although it makes me wonder if you just have to be careful with the messy cr- like messy criticals on routine rolls are kind of lame. I'm, I I don't know. I I get a messy critical while I'm researching. What the heck? I yeah. come on. But, but look, looking at you, Fantasy Flight, the games, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing with willpower is that depending on how much the storyteller uses these systems, and there's there's a couple of things with that. There there are a number of things that are triggered by die rolls in this system that get messed around with if you're not rolling dice a lot. But the particular one that comes up here is that willpower serves two functions. Willpower can be used to fix rolls, but willpower is also health if you're actually using the social combat rules. And if, as a storyteller, you are going, you were thinking that you're going to rely on your players burning a lot of willpower... Which they can do. I mean, you you basically almost any character is going to get three free willpower spends a session because you automatically heal that much. But that is not the case if you're actually also giving them willpower damage. So what do you think about the damage thing? Because we used to have, uh, right, like it was bashing and lethal and aggravated, I think. And now there's only superficial and aggravated. But then you have to keep track of, well, is this aggravated for this type of person versus superficial for that type of person? And then if it's superficial, I have to have the damage. And then I have to remember that, like, this is something that, for me at least, was very easy to forget. That applies to willpower damage, too. So they have these massive willpower damage numbers in the social combat section. And... They're high even after you have them, but if you don't remember that they're have, they're completely crippling. Yeah. What do you think about about the damage system and like superficial versus aggravated and how it works out? Well, the intent I think was to make it so that against mortals, vampires would just completely wipe them out, even if they are at a low neonate street crawling anarch level. But when you're against other supernatural creatures, you should just Again, having it will make it um, on a different playing field. They're trying to make that distinction. And with that distinction, it's kind of like 
if you don't remember that having rule, then it gets really unbalanced and things get shut down really quickly, which is fine in the case of like like a, a really powerful elder um, dressing down a neonate. But when things are pretty even, it goes back to some of the unbalanced things that I didn't like about previous editions, where low-level characters can just like go toe-to-toe with an elder just because of the point build. The thing with the damage types for me is it, it feels like they were trying to simplify. They're like, oh, we don't need three damage types. There can only be mm-hmm. two damage types. But then there are so many modifiers that it ends up more complicated than it was intended. Yeah. I, I kind of wish... I wish they had just stuck with the three damage type. Yeah. It's more complicated to have two damage types, but then there's conditions on everything than than mm-hmm. to just have three. Yeah, uh, again, they, they mentioned before that they're trying to, like, just keep it, like, in the lines, like, vampires are meant to be played with vampires, werewolves um, played with werewolves, mortals with mortals, but um, there is there is the inevitable crossover. I'm not even thinking about, like, other other kinds of monsters. I mean, look, I know I know people like to do crossovers, and, you know, here's the story on the Facebook about my vampire who's married to a werewolf or whatever. I... I don't care. So, like, when you hear my opinion on this, like, they're not designed to be worked together. They've never worked together. They never have. So, it's not even that. I mean, like, it's really just about humans or things. And if you're talking about, you know, like, if you normally it's just vampires on vampires, why have a damage system where on a, on a, like, for the normal, standard, most common damage type, you always have to have the damage? Wouldn't it have been better to do something else like, oh, well, if it's a human and you hit them with a gun, then you double the damage. Or, I I, I mean, like, like take the less... Co- I don't know. Anyhow, it, I don't know that that, that is a, a thing. But but the willpower, the other thing to... to The reason I think about the willpower in, in confluence with the spending is, right, once your tracker is filled up, then you start taking aggravated damage. And aggravated willpower damage is completely crippling for a character because it's so hard to heal. Yeah, it's slow. <laughs> Physical ag damage isn't easy to heal either, but that's part of the thing from this is that, right, so your your typical character is going to have about five willpower. That's if you have a two and a three on. Your, aver- your average character is going to have like a five or six willpower. And if you actually apply the rules as written, I think when it talks about aggravated social damage, if it's a close friend or if an important secret is revealed then the social damage is going to be aggravated. So let me present you with a scenario. And this is where the modifiers kick in too. Like if you get embarrassed in court, like in front of elders, I mean, don't get, like, let me preface this. That should really matter. Like story-wise, that should really matter. But let's say you have a character with six willpower and an important secret of yours is revealed in front of the prince. You are dead. You now can no longer function as a character because you just, even assuming that like the person wasn't rolling particularly well, you just took enough aggravated damage. Like that's, I think just the prince being there is four aggravated, is four damage. And like it's one to start with and it's direct to ag. And you cannot recover more than one aggravated damage a session. And you can only do it if you've been able to work towards your ambition, which you're going to have a very hard time doing when you have, like, no willpower whatsoever. Yeah, basically, either go brood for a couple of weeks or, you know, slip in a torpor. 
you know, you can't even brood for a couple of weeks. It's a session. You as a player are actually forced to sit through session after session after session where you are crippled by aggravated damage. It so the main point being is like you have to the social combat stuff is interesting, but willpower is the fact that willpower is doing double duty means that I mean the example I gave, it doesn't really matter how much willpower you already had because you're just taking ag damage straight to the head, as it were. But even if it's not ag damage, if you have spent most of your willpower in order to fix the difficulty problem, and then you take any significant amount of willpower, it will start tipping into ag, which then gets, like I said, is, is very hard to, to deal with. Anyhow, so I, I guess I think the damage system could be better. I agreed. However, I do think it's um, very fun that even though it, the damage is halved, you could just shoot a vampire into torpor. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, you could always do that. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, yes, you can just keep yeah. hitting and hitting but and hitting was, until they're done. Yeah. But um, just there's a certain um, scene that um, came up in our game where just in the course of two rounds, you're you're able to just, with guns, just drop someone down. It, it's, it's refreshing that that ability is there. <laughs> yes, you can. You can uh, shoot, shoot the snot out of... Uh, you, you can still shoot people. It's halved and it's... But it's... You you don't I mean people don't have that much health relatively speaking mm-hmm. right because it's just your stamina plus three and stamina and on the other thing is stamina is otherwise not really a very useful statistic all things considered so I think there's a reasonable yeah. chance of it being dumped but let's see I like lore sheets I don't know that I have much more to say than I like lore sheets but I think lore sheets are a great addition yep. I don't know. Yeah, there we Ooh, that was there there's our exciting <laughs> detailed analysis. Lore sheets are a great idea. That Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about this a couple times in previous podcasts. They're great. Yes, yes. Now you don't get enough points in character creation for backgroundy sort of stuff. So as a storyteller, mm-hmm. I would encourage you to consider doing something like doubling the number of background points that you get so your players yeah. can actually do something interesting. Check. So <laughs> I mean I don't know why it's you. You start with and things cost more often. So yeah, give give your characters more. Yeah, I, I, again, I think the intent was to make sure that you could just be like a street hobo embraced um, randomly, and you can run with that story for a little bit. But if you want to make detailed characters that actually have lives and continue to have their unlives, you want a few more points to flesh that out. So what is what is another major thing? So humanity, humanity underwent a pretty significant overhaul. And I'm not sure that when I last wrote and we talked about this, I understood how how significant that overhaul was supposed to be. So I, I guess let me ask the very a, a first thing about that. Humanity, I, I think if you're going as written in book like humanity doesn't actually have anything to do with morality anymore what do you think about that well i think in the book it's they they do they do try to make that point i'm not sure if they make it explicit or not but you could with um your chronicle tenants and your own personal beliefs um what were the personal ones called the convictions yeah they're trying to make it so you can still be on the 
for lack of a better term in this edition, Path of Humanity. You can still do that without necessarily being a great person, as long as you're like sticking true to what uh, makes you human. And before like these these paths or um, whatever were strictly morality based, I do think that um, the new um, version gives you a bit more flexibility on what exactly should degrade your what humanity re- represents in this edition, your connection to humanity and not just being a feral beast. And I think it's more about the connection rather than right or wrong, being good or evil. But I do think in the future we'll see other paths again, and I'm kind of interested to see how that will mechanically change what is going to be coming on. Because, like, as written, like, if you get a really low humanity, you're now taking uh, social penalties to interacting with mortals, and at some point just um, murdering um, people, which is something a vampire should get used to doing at some point, in my opinion. At at some point, uh, murdering people will make it so you just can't interact with them socially. It sort of always did that. There were always penalties there. I mean, low humanity used to inflict penalties to force. So it's so. Here's the thing. I don't. You're right. You said like I don't know if they make it clear. I don't know if they were clear on what they wanted. When you look at a lot of the when you look at the mechanics of how convictions and tenets. Or, or maybe not convictions, but like of how like touchstones and some of the flavor description works. It's really about detachment from people. Mm. But at the same time, when you look at the descriptions of the different humanity levels, it's really a lot of it is phrased in terms of like being okay with hurting people, which still ends up in very moral sort of terms. And maybe it's partially just because it's it's very hard for me to shake that notion. I mean, like the the moral degradation has always been such a to me is such a central part of it. That's one of the reasons why I could care less that there aren't paths because it's like you're playing a completely different game when you have a character who's not under the old system when you have a character who's not on humanity anymore. It's not a storytelling game of personal horror anymore. It's not. There's no horror for you at that point. You've completely abandoned any of it. Yeah. But when we started, I, I know I, I my thing was like, oh, well, the conviction thing is a little, or the chronicle tenets, like, well, I like that in the way you can define the morality. You still are basically forced to have a chronicle tenant that simulates humanity or else you don't lose, you, you don't actually lose humanity for killing people. And that's the other thing too. Like if you define the, the hum- I guess the humanity levels are all written in terms of hurting people, and so mm-hmm. if you just take it as detachment f- from humanity and you don't have a chronicle tenant that relates to, like, hurting people is bad, then the humanity levels, flavor-wise, like, just have no connection to the things that make you lose humanity. There's, like, this disjoint there. I really liked the idea of touchstones originally. I'm not as enthusiastic about it now. One is a practical consideration, and you can speak to this end too, is that like theoretically touchstones are supposed to actually come up in the story, and that's a lot of mortals to have coming up all the time if everybody yeah. has three convictions. Like 
How fun was it trying to juggle that as storyteller, Craig? Well, I basically just kind of picked two from every character instead of three to focus on. And just like the the other one kind of like existed in the background. But, uh, you know, like if you're doing it properly, you're already having 50 plus NPCs in your Chronicle. And then you're expected to put, say you have four players, 12 more in, not to mention anything that they take uh, like allies or contacts, um, stuff like that, that would add more. So what I did kind of like to kind of combine it is, hey, if you're taking allies or contacts and you're making um, them your touchstones, I'm actually going to incentivize that by lowering the cost a little bit. So just less less mortals for me to keep track of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's even setting aside the what I consider to be laughable metagaming that was explicitly suggested in the book of basically like trying to figure out who other vampires are, who other vampires' touchstones are, and killing them. Not in a, oh, like, I'm going to find who's important to you and kill them to hurt you, but like a, I'm going to try to affect your connection to humanity. Like, oh, like, what the? Yeah. Well, the other thing about the touchstones, which kind of, again, is like, what does all of this really mean? Is I know, I mean, at least one of mine, like, I, I... when I thought about this more, I tried to push it a little. I know at least one of mine, like, is just wrong, and, like, that's not really what a touchstone is supposed to be, and I know that was one of the other ones, and I and I think that people do this a lot, right, is... The other thing is that, right, touchstones aren't necessarily people who are important to you in a normal sort of way, right? Like, it's supposed to be somebody who embodies a thing. So, like, I have a... I have a... Like, one of my character's touchstones is a family member and was a tag being related to a conviction of looking out for family. So I, like, had a hookup there with that. I I did something, but really later I realized that's not, like, somebody, if you have a conviction of look out for family, and actually I'm going to say, so my, the actual title of the conviction, because I find it incredibly clever, and so I'm going to inflict it on all of you, is I am my brother's keeper. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just, I... Book of Nod is my favorite thing. The whole Cain killing Cain and Abel thing is my like my favorite background lore thing in Vampire. So the character is a family member, but really it should be that touchstone for a conviction of I am my brother's keeper should be someone who actually embodies the notion of always looking out for family. And that pushes a lot more work onto what a touchstone has to be. And then even more work onto the storyteller for trying to actually have that come up in the story. I don't know. I like the idea of like making sure that the character has mortal connections built in, but pushing the mechanic on it, I guess makes it feel like it quote unquote should come up or like needs to come up. And I don't know. There's just like so much to juggle already with all the vampire stuff without having, you know, mandatory random humans appearing beyond that. I did mention that there would be other resource management in the game. <laughs> yes. So another like kind of across the board thing is I like I, I in general like the new clan weaknesses better. Mm-hmm. I mean if you've if you listened before there's one particular one that Craig and I don't like to change on. But in general yeah, I like the clan we already talked about the Toridor. Yeah, I like the clan weaknesses better and I especially like that there are they're they're mostly weaker. They're mostly less of a problem, and I like how for several of the clans, 
they really push the clan in a more playable direction to some extent by doing what you were probably already doing anyway, right? Like the Nosferatu, okay, I mean, like they're supposed to be hideously ugly and yet somehow monstrously hideously ugly so that like anyone would be terrified and run away. And yet, you know, they mostly like still get along as as needed regardless. The Gangrel were supposed to get these permanent animalistic deformities and yet somehow that never actually stopped any gangrel on a long-term basis from interacting with people and so those are like those have just been replaced with kind of like a like okay well you have that thing but it's temporary or okay sure you're really ugly but not to the point of like people are going to recognize that you're not really human kind of you know hideousness they made them all the all the plans more playable from the beginning which is, I think, the goal. I guess we can kind of gloss over the 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 blood uh, dysplasia and whatever. It, it, yeah. So I, we didn't use it. <laughs> it. Yeah. So I mean, I um, like yeah. So like, I didn't like the mechanical thought stuff with resonance from the beginning, and I thought dysplasia was just a really bad idea. But I, I particularly liked that the first time someone told me about resonance was which was back in like a I mean before the book came out in a play like in a convention play sort of situation and I was and I like the flavor of it like the flavor of the like people taste different depending on what their emotional state is but the moment they said like and you get dis- bonuses to a discipline for that I'm like what is this a video game I feel like you're turning people into a video game power up and it turns out that's exactly what it is it's a mechanic yeah. from the Blood Tines 2 video game that got imported into this so that it lined up with the video game, except it's a bad tabletop mechanic. Yeah, so if you want as a storyteller, uh, describe the taste uh, for certain people as being different, but I wouldn't worry too much about the, com- the mechanics. It just makes things easier for you. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I have under the, ah, the video game thing, and like, don't get me wrong, I greatly look forward to playing the video game but the video game is not a tabletop game is i i think the like the thin bloods right in the video game you're going to start out as a thin blood and then like graduate to being a real vampire i guess you're a real boy but the thin bloods the the rules complexity for thin bloods is just off the charts and feels really weird in a like i know this is going back i mean this is an individual product thing not a system thing but like it feels really weird in a core book that doesn't even include all of the vampire types to have all of this time spent on these like weird, not really. And it's because they're in the video game. Yeah. Uh, and it's much more, it's, it's too, it's too complicated. It's too, I don't know. I mean, how does a, a thin blood kid of like two weeks on the street at night, figure out blood alchemy. I'm, I can see maybe some, one of them figuring it out, but unless there's like this whole, neural network of like hey guess out your check out your new uh blood transfer powers going around uh it's like flavor wise it doesn't really fit so i ignored it i feel like it's there's such complexity built into it that you either you kind of either need to make the whole thin blood thing a major component of the chronicle or just ignore it you can't just have like oh here's this one 14th generation vampire and like everybody freaks out in a about, you know, the dilution of the blood kind of thing. I don't know. So I think that hits all of my things. I don't know if you have anything else, but I will at least give you a a chance, Craig, to talk about 
the whole blood loses the power to bond a few seconds after it leads the body thing because I know you uh, yeah. had some thoughts I about mean, that. In this in this um, um version, the the blood binds must be like straight from the, from the vein because if you like let it sit for a while, it just loses its power. I thought thematically that wasn't appropriate for my game, and I kind of like the notion of like an elder vampire bottling up some blood to, to like send over the post um s- postal system to his child there to you know keep him on the leash. I don't know. I didn't like it, so I changed it, and that's the thing with the overall lore. It's your game at the end of the day. If there's something in the lore or the rules you don't like, there's no one going to come around and force you to use it. You could always, if you don't like the new lore for the 21st century vampires, play in the 90s or something when it was originally set, or play a Dark Ages game. Or play a game where this major event did or didn't happen or happened a different way. You can you can get around the whole meta context, the meta plot thing that's going on. If that's not your thing, I'm okay with them. We don't we don't have very much of the meta plot right now. I don't know. I mean, as long as I, I don't know, I, I don't I don't really feel the desire to have like magic item, magic guns from the second second Inquisition running around. But yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Like, all right, I, I'm okay with the Sabat being like radically transformed, eviscerated, whatever they. It's not a playstyle I cared about anyway, like, so, my, welcome to my personal thing. Uh, as far as the, I mean, yeah, the blood bond specific thing, I mean, it's different. I actually, I don't, I don't know that it's better or worse either way, it's just kind of different. It, not using that, does uh, interact with some other sort of things that are in the rules. I, I think it's probably not a coincidence, like, right, there's this little sidebar about vampiric intimacy, which Craig hated, and I, a key part of that is trying to resist directly drinking from each other because that will blood bond you whereas to each other whereas you can do other things that aren't that without actually getting blood bonded if you could just wait five seconds before drinking that blood (laughs) it depends what your definition of is is (laughs) and i i actually thought that was kind of interesting although again like just to go back to an earlier theme for the love of Pete, do not use the difficulties listed in that sidebar. Like it's impossible. I mean, <laughs> impossible. Like you, you, you are all. You're, you're just gonna end up blood bonded to each other anyway. Like it's. You're. There's no possible way that you're going to get out of that encounter without uh, at least a little bit blood bonded towards each other. But <laughs> so I guess that's that's what we have at least for this uh, allotted period of time on on V5 so far. We are going to see, I think in the second half of this year, and then especially kicking in next year, a lot more content for this. As anybody who's been following this knows, right, we haven't gotten a lot since the core book because there's been a a changeover of stuff. But you're going to have Onyx Path still making stuff, right? That's in the pipeline. And Modiphius is going to be doing a lot of stuff, right? Modiphius is going to be getting us the rules for all the clans and that sort of thing, for example. I don't know if they're going to get anything physical out this year, but I think the, the plan is that there's going to be PDF stuff hitting. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting more of the vampire stuff. But I, I as, as you've heard in this, I... I do hope that there are, I mean, there are some individual things that I 
think could use some tweaking and clarifying and that sort of thing. But I mean, I don't, I could be mistaken, but I don't think we have any plans right now to like go back to V20 or anything like that. So you have any final thoughts there, Craig? Again, um, conceit of the game, make sure you and your players on the same page of what system components and lower components you're using and not um, using from the get-go and you shouldn't have any problems but there's like a big contradiction contradiction just remember that unreliable narrator aspect of like who says the gangrel and bruja can't be in the camarilla if they're following the rules thing just you know go with it and make it your own story and don't worry about the rules because the storyteller system wasn't designed to be a rules heavy game although I don't know, it's trying hard in this one to beat, so. Yeah, you you should care about the rules. That's that's why we have these books. Yes. Anyhow, rules and narrative are not enemies. That's that's my final thought. So, you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there or in the Apple Podcasts app, iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, or elsewhere. If you use a podcatching service and you don't see us on there, please let me know, and I will attempt to rectify that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your comments, criticism, and other feedback. You can also get a hold of us at the usual social media places. We are at Strange Assembly on Twitter. We are Strange Assembly on Facebook, and we're also Strange Assembly on Instagram, which will matter a little bit more over the next month because there will be pictures from Gen Con. But until then, for Craig Kellner, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs> <laughs>